Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a new podcast on the Bible, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. And now here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. This is Dr. Bill Creasy on the very first podcast of Scripture Uncovered. Now, I've known a lot of you for a long time, and I have to admit, I know absolutely nothing about podcasts. My son, Jonathan, is a big fan of podcasts, though, and he says that we need one. Jonathan designed, built, and manages the Logos Online Classroom. He got his PhD in English Literature last year from Trinity College in Dublin, and he lives in Ireland. I guess he knows what he's talking about. So, I went out and bought Podcast for Dummies. Well, an appropriate book, I think. I just finished reading it. So, here it goes, my first attempt at a podcast. In Scripture Uncovered, I'll take a close look at a passage from Scripture from the Old Testament or the New Testament. But unlike my classroom lectures, I want to explore Scripture from a much more personal and intimate perspective. Teaching is explication of the text. Preaching is application of the text. And I'd like to do a little of both in the podcast. But more than that, I really want to explore Scripture deeply and probe what it means to me. Now, I deliberately don't do this in class. I don't get into Scripture in a very personal way. But I'm going to do that here on the podcast. After we explore a passage of Scripture, I'll then turn to questions that you have asked, either in class or I've received in emails or online. Now, in my 30 years of teaching, I've had a lot of questions come my way. So, we have a whole lot to work with. And don't worry, if you have a question, feel free to ask it. There's no such thing as a dumb question. Just contact me through LogosBibleStudy.com and I'll include your question on the podcast at some point in the future. So, Here goes, we'll give it a try. The passage I'd like to explore today is the story of the prophet Elisha and the floating iron axe head in 2 Kings chapter 6, 1 through 7. It's a short little vignette inserted in a much larger story of the conflict between Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, or Syria, and Joram, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. The story takes place around 850 BC. So let me read it to you. And I begin. The guild prophets once said to Elisha, this place where we meet with you is too small. Let's go to the Jordan River where by getting one beam apiece, we can build ourselves a place to meet. So Elisha has been meeting with a guild of prophets. These are young prophets, students, if you will, of Elisha, and where they meet is too small. Now imagine if we're in class together and we have, oh, let's say 200 people in class, but week by week, more and more people add, and eventually we've packed the place out with 500 people. Well, the room is simply too small. So Elisha's students said, let's go down to the Jordan River, cut some trees down, make lumber, and build a new place. Great idea. 
And Elisha said, Go. Now one of them requested, and in the Hebrew it reads, the one requested, said, please agree to accompany us uh, as we go down and chop the wood. And Elisha said, why, yes, I'd be delighted to come. So he went with them. And when they arrived at the Jordan, they began to cut down the trees. Well, that's a fine idea. Let's get the place built. Now, while one of them was felling a tree trunk, the iron axe head slipped off the handle and flew into the water. Well, the student cried out, Oh no, it was borrowed. Elisha said, Where did it fall? And when he pointed out the spot, Elisha cut off a stick, threw it into the water, and brought the iron to the surface. He said, pick it up. And the man stretched out his hand and picked it up. Now think about this story for a little bit. Remember back before the story begins when the prophet Elijah, the great prophet of the Hebrew scriptures, Elijah and Elisha were making their way down to the Jordan River where Elijah would be taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire and the mantle of the prophet would drop upon Elisha. As they were going toward the Jordan River, the guild of prophets, that is, Elisha's students, came to him privately and they said, do you know that today the Lord will take your master from you? And Elisha replied with tears in his eyes, I, I, I know, please don't speak of it. I, I think those words reflect Elisha's deep affection for Elijah. And in contrast to the young hooligans who mock Elisha after Elijah is taken from him, the young hooligans upon whom Elisha calls two bears to eat 42 of them, a great story, I think here we see Elisha's students expressing their genuine concern and affection for Elisha. I think that's a wonderful thing. Elisha has apparently attracted quite a large number of students because the place where they meet is too small. So we'll go down, chop some trees, and make a new place. And that student, the one, that favored student, invites Elisha to join the group. Now, any professor worth his or her salt would be delighted with such an invitation. Elisha. One of the great prophets. Yeah, we always think of Elijah as the great prophet, and he is. But Elisha was a quiet fellow, a quiet man. But he was a wonderful teacher for his students. I've been teaching for a long time. I was a professor at UCLA for almost 28 years, and I've been teaching scripture all throughout the community and online for nearly 30 years. Teaching is a wonderful profession. You know, I, I would pay them to let me do it. And one of the great joys of being a teacher, whether you're an elementary school teacher, a junior high teacher, high school teacher, or college teacher, is building relationships with your students. A lot of students pass through. 
lot of them. Many you say hello to, they, they're there during the semester and then they leave and you don't hear from them again. But there are other students that you connect with, other students who become really important to you, other students who become friends, some of them for a lifetime. When I was 24 years old, I began as a freshman at Arizona State University. I had spent six years in the Marine Corps, I'd just gotten out, and I met Dr. Jack Evans. He was professor in the English department, and I took, ultimately, every class that Jack taught. Jack was the most genuinely good man I've ever known, a wonderful professor. And over the years, we developed a close relationship. He became my mentor, my friend, a friend for a lifetime. I've known Jack now for 45 years and his wife, Rosemary. In fact, this past weekend, I drove over to Phoenix to visit them. But that's what being a teacher is all about, developing close, intimate relationships, watching your students develop intellectually, professionally. And here in the story of the Iron Axe Head, we have this tender relationship between Elisha and his students. And you have to ask, when that student was swinging the axe and chopping down the tree, and the axe head flew off and splashed in the water, it was borrowed. You know, I know from personal experience that graduate students are, are dirt poor. They scrape together uh, odd jobs and grants and scholarships to fund their education. And this fellow was a, a poor graduate student, if you will. And he lost the axe head. And you also have to ask, why did the person who lent it to him give him a bad axe? But off went the axe head, and Elisha brought it up. I, I think that's a, a wonderful story, a wonderful story about a relationship between a teacher and his student, a tender relationship that becomes a friendship for a long, long time. And to me, in all these years of teaching, I think the most rewarding part of my profession, of my vocation, is getting to know my students, getting to love my students, and spend a lifetime with them. So there's our reflection on a, an odd story in Scripture, a little vignette inserted in a great story of conflict, a vignette that really illustrates the character of Elisha and his relationship with those students who followed him. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. This new podcast is part of the 30-year journey Dr. Creasy has taken studying and teaching Scripture. Visit LogosBibleStudy.com to learn about more ways to study and travel with Dr. Creasy, from live and online classes to once-in-a-lifetime adventures on Logos teaching tours, where together we explore Israel, Egypt, Turkey, Ireland, Spain, Greece, Italy, and the Mediterranean world. It's an amazing adventure. That's LogosBibleStudy.com, and you can see more about online classes, live events, and teaching tours. Now, back to the show. Here's Dr. Creasy. Here we go now, moving into our questions. 
And question number one, and I get this all the time when we begin a Bible class and we do the story of creation in Genesis chapter one. Did God really create the entire world in seven days as we read in Genesis? Well, at the beginning of a class, a seven-year program covering the entire Bible verse by verse, the very first class meeting, you know, we have all new people and they've never really been exposed to Scripture. And we begin, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty and darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. The first day. And then we move on through chapter one, and we have the seven days of creation. Each day of creation leading to completion and fulfillment. And at the end, God once again says, it is very good. Did God really create the world in seven 24-hour days? Well, I think in addressing that question, we have to look a little broader at Genesis chapters 1 through 11, what I call the primeval chapters of Genesis. In these chapters, Scripture addresses the fundamental issues of the human condition. How did the world get here? How did we get here? Why are we here? Who created all this, if anyone? These fundamental issues of the human condition. And you know, every culture, every time, every place, every culture has a story of creation, a story addressing these fundamental issues. The Egyptians have a creation story. Uh, the Babylonians have a creation story. Uh, every culture has a creation story. In this story, the story in Scripture, in Genesis chapter 1, we have a highly poetic rendering of creation. I think of it as not mythology, but mythopoeic literature. That is, a story that addresses the fundamental issues of the human condition. It's important when we read Scripture that we understand the historical context, the cultural context, and the literary genre that we're reading. And here in Genesis 1 through 11, we're reading mythopoeic literature. And we have to understand the conventions of mythopoeic literature in order to understand the story itself. We're not to take this story literally. Of course, God didn't create the world in seven 24-hour days. We know that. But the story of a balanced, symmetrical, perfect, and good creation. That's the point. So as we address these primeval chapters in Genesis, keep that in mind. We're reading mythopoeic literature, literature that addresses with its own conventions the fundamental issues of the human condition. Now, on to question two. We read in Mark 3, verses 28 to 30, that every sin is forgiven except the sin against the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. 
Now, wait a minute. I thought Christ died on the cross, taking our sin upon himself, paying the penalty for that sin, that we might step into the presence of God in a right relationship. Didn't he die for all of our sin? Well, of course he did. Oh, wait, maybe one he didn't. If there's an unforgivable sin, I'd like to know what it is because I don't want to commit it. So what is the sin against the Holy Spirit? Well, I think to answer that, we have to understand the Holy Spirit. In Scripture, in the Christian Scriptures, the New Testament, and also in the Hebrew Scriptures, we see God presented in a plurality. In Genesis chapter 1, for example, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word God is Elohim in Hebrew. It's a plural noun. Put an I am on a Hebrew noun, you make it plural. It's a plural noun. And then over in chapter 1, at verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, you should have a red flag on that saying, who is us? No one's been created yet. There's a plurality here of God. Now, that plurality could be a plural of majesty. That is, much as Queen Victoria, having been told an off-color joke, said, we are not amused. A plural of majesty. Or it could be addressing the angelic host, that God, together with the angelic host, he said, let us create man in our image. But we haven't yet met an angelic host in our story. So it could suggest a plurality in the nature of God. And as Christians, that's what we understand, that God is one, yet three persons in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we read through Scripture, Genesis all the way through Revelation, all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are present on every page of Scripture. But in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, God the Father stands at the fourth stage, and He is the dominant figure all the way through the Hebrew Scriptures. Turn the page to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God the Son stands on the fourth stage, and He is the dominant figure. And then turn the page to Acts through Revelation, God the Holy Spirit is the dominant figure. So, what is the Holy Spirit's job beginning with Acts? When the Holy Spirit arrives on the day of Pentecost, AD 32, when Peter preaches his sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, what is the job of the Holy Spirit? Well, the job of the Holy Spirit is twofold. One, having to do with the church at large. The job of the Holy Spirit with the church at large is to guide, shape, and nurture the church down through the ages. And if the church is attentive to the Holy Spirit, the church can do magnificent, heroic things. If the church is not attentive to the Holy Spirit, then the church goes off in the wrong direction and can, can do awful things, which in fact the church has done across history. But as long as the church is attentive to the Holy Spirit and following the Holy Spirit, it does well and indeed 
it performs heroically. Now, the second job of the Holy Spirit is with you and me. We're born into this world, we learn, in Genesis chapter 3, in a condition of sin. And we define sin not as an act that one commits, but a condition that one is in, a condition of alienation and separation from God that manifests itself in outward sinful action. Every single one of us is born into that condition. And barring the radical intervention of God's grace, we will live in that condition and we will step out into eternity in that condition, in a place of alienation and separation from God, which we might define as hell. However, the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world, we read in the Gospel according to John, to convict the world of the reality of sin, the holiness of God, and the inevitable judgment that must follow. If sin is a reality and God is infinitely holy, then God must judge sin. So the job of the Holy Spirit in the world is only one to hold up the mirror of reality and create a sense of conviction about the reality of sin, the holiness of God, and the inevitable judgment that must follow. You cannot take one step closer to a Savior until you recognize your need to be saved. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit in the world. Now, once we move into the family of God, once we become sons and daughters of God, then the Holy Spirit has a different role. The Holy Spirit takes up residence within us and comforts us. He says, you know, you can't live this life in Christ all by yourself, all on your own steam. You can't do it. I'm here to help you. You can lean on me. And the Holy Spirit provides talents and gifts and abilities that we might serve God and serve God's people. So what is the unforgivable sin? out there in the world, born into a condition of sin, if we adamantly refuse, adamantly refuse to listen to the Holy Spirit's message of conviction about the reality of sin, the holiness of God, and the judgment that must follow, if we say, no, 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 that's all silly, uh, that, that's, that's superstition, uh, idiot, stupid people believe that, no, no, no. If we take that position and we take it with gusto and we never let it go and we keep that conviction right to the very end of our lives, to our very last breath, and we step out into eternity, God will honor our choice and we will live eternity apart from Him. It's not that God can't forgive the sin, it's that we won't allow Him to. And that is the unforgivable sin on our part. It's not on God's part. Now we turn to question number three, the final question for the very first podcast. And question number three moves up to the New Testament. Why did St. Paul and Barnabas part company in Acts 15, verses 36 to 41? Barnabas and Paul you know, Paul was a persecutor of the church. He murdered Christians. He said himself, I was the greatest of sinners. And yet, on that road to Damascus, when Paul had his dramatic conversion, 
he went 180 degrees in the other direction. You know, I remember at UCLA teaching my uh, English Bible as literature course, I was preparing a lecture on Paul and my colleague, Michael Cohen, uh, came by, we were going to lunch together, and he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm working on, on the Apostle Paul. And, and Michael said, oh, once a fanatic, always a fanatic. You know, Paul persecuted the church, and Paul became the great saint of the church. He had extreme positions on either side. But when Paul had his conversion on the road to Damascus, he wanted to be part of the apostles. He wanted to join the apostles, but they wouldn't have anything to do with him. It was Barnabas, Barnabas from Cyprus, who met with Paul, found him to be authentic, and introduced him to the apostles, who were very cautious at the beginning about this guy. Paul and Barnabas become very close friends. They are together in the church in Syrian Antioch, their home church. They are teachers in that church. And on the very first missionary journey, AD 46 to 48, Paul and Barnabas travel together. And they take Mark, who was a relative of Barnabas, a younger relative, they take him with them. And on that first missionary journey, they left Syria and Antioch, they sailed to Cyprus, they taught their way across Cyprus, they went north then to Antalya on the southern coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and then up to Perga, north to Perga. At Perga, Mark deserted Paul and Barnabas in the middle of the night. He didn't say a thing. He was just not there the next day with a note pinned to the pillow, sorry guys, I'm going home. Whatever happened in Perga, it scared Mark off. Well, first missionary journey finished in AD 48. Two years went by AD 50, and Barnabas and Paul were talking and said, you know, we should go back and revisit the churches that we had uh, formed on the first missionary journey. And Barnabas said, I think that's a fine idea. Let's take Mark again. And Paul said, no way, we're not taking that guy. He might be your relative, but no, he deserted us in Perga. He's not coming. And Barnabas said, come on, Paul. Everybody deserves a second chance. God knows you had one. Paul said, absolutely not. They disagreed to such an extent, they almost came to blows. Paul took Silas and headed in the opposite direction of the first missionary journey. Barnabas took Mark and headed the other way. And I think when they parted, they said, I hope I don't meet you on the road. As far as we know from Scripture, Paul and Barnabas never spoke again after that parting. A sad thing, it seems to me, a sad thing in the life of the church and in Scripture. So there we have it, my very first podcast. I hope this works out well. Jonathan sure thought it would. And, uh, and I hope so too. So God bless all of you and never forget what great students you really are. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy. Remember, Scripture Uncovered wants to hear from you. So go to scriptureuncovered.com to submit your questions and Dr. Creasy might answer them on air. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us reviews and ratings. That's the best way to let us know how we're doing and to spread the word about Scripture Uncovered. That's scriptureuncovered.com. Subscribe on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. See you next week.